he's like, oh, I've wished them away. I have to be an adult now. And I don't have to be an adult today and tomorrow. Like, I've got to just be an adult now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I need to go and buy enough microwave dinners until I next go shopping. It's both kind of funny, but also very Very sad. sad. (laughs) Yeah. Ramblings, a podcast about stories and storytelling. I'm Faye Fix. And I'm Charlene. And this week we're doing our second seasonal episode of the season, and we're going to be talking about Home Alone. Uh, we just did a pre-ramble discussing holiday movies and the Santa Claus a little bit, uh, so if you're a Patreon supporter you can go and check that out there, or if you're not you can become a Patreon supporter, that would be awesome, and then you can join in with our Discord conversations and chime in as people will be doing today. So we're obviously going to be spoiling all of Home Alone. I mean, spoiler warnings on this one seem a little gratuitous. I mean, there's not a huge amount of plot, and I feel like most people have seen this film at this point. But we will be spoiling it. If we have any other spoiler or content warnings, we will be throwing those in right here with us from the future. Hello! We have no spoiler warnings this time. Huzzah! And no content warnings! Yay! We made a happy episode. Well, a not content warning episode. Back to the past. Welcome back. So that brings us to the plot summary. As I say, this is a fairly simple plot. The McAllisters are about to go off to France for vacation. Their son, Kevin, who is eight, is being bullied by the family and thus being kind of a brat in response. Big fight happens. He gets shut in the attic. They leave without him in the morning and hijinks ensue while they're away and then trying to get back to burglars attempt to rob their house, not burglarize. And Kevin defiantly fights them off and tricks them into getting trapped in a different house and calls the police and then his family turn up that's it that's the whole movie give or take yeah pretty much i mean there's some nuance in there but we'll that's what the rest of the episode's for yes so we talked in the pre-ramble a little bit about about what makes a holiday movie and there's a lot of different things but there's a lot of tropes that you see across them and one of the ones that comes up a lot is this sort of holiday wish you know whether it be something simple like wishing for snow or whatnot and you wake up the next morning and oh my god there's snow outside and it's just a fun storytelling device that this is sort of an inversion of the innocence of that wish and it's something that i had sort of like watching the movie a lot as a child and then thinking back to it i remembered all of the like stuff with marley and him defending the house from the burglars and then everything else i completely forgot it just went over my head as a child marley the, the old guy the neighbor yeah yeah so i'm in a weird position where like i'm sure i did see home alone at some point when i was a kid but i really don't remember it like pretty much at all like the vague memories i have of it from before watching this might as well just be from having like seen it referenced and stuff so it was kind of like watching it the first time because I had no idea what was going to happen or, yeah, I had just very, very little memory of it. So for me, like, that stuff is a lot more clear. It's not as surprising except in that it's something I haven't seen. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it certainly hadn't really dawned on me as a child that, like, Kevin thinks he has just wished his family away. Yeah. he it's he doesn't sad, actually. Right. He doesn't really put together, like, you sort of expect him... And maybe that's unfair of an eight-year-old to wake up the next morning and find the house empty and be like, oh my god, those fuckers went to France without me, and I'm just here by myself. He goes, oh, I made that wish last night that they'd all just go away, and now they're gone, and that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean... That is set up for him by his mom. 
because in that fight she's like you'd be sad if we were gone and he's like no I wouldn't and she's like well then say that again like you wish that we were all gone and maybe it will happen and he does so it's set up very much like the freaky friday or like various other things of that time where there's some sort of like weird magic thing that happens to a child that based on a thing that they said when they didn't mean it yeah there's some of those weird slight voiceover moments as well that are like supposed to imply mysticism like the film almost sets it up for it to be magic except that they're also showing you behind the curtain yeah, they're showing you how, like, the power went out and everyone overslept and, yeah. you know, Kevin just didn't get woken up and, like, the neighbor kid was there when the head count was happening and so it was wrong. They thought they had enough kids, whatever. But so you get it. And also, I, I appreciate that that's there because it does make the family <laughs> seem less shitty. Like, it's not that they forgot him. It's that they thought they had him. And yeah. they had good reason to believe that. They delegated that task to someone old enough to do it. Like, you know, but it's kind of a whole thing. Yeah. There's a lot of this movie that, like, requires some suspension of disbelief for like the ridiculous coincidence but also just watching it in 2020 on the other end of a lot of the stranger danger stuff on the other end of like i mean even they run into the airport and go through like they're going to catch a flight that leaves in 45 minutes and it's just like no this is the other side of 9-11 that's not happening you may as well just give up on that plan yeah they get to the terminal and the doors close and things and she's like no it's fine let me get you back on the plane here we go just grab whatever seat you want. Doesn't look at their tickets. It's insane watching it from the <laughs> point of view of like travel today. Someone in the chat has pointed out that uh, they probably didn't think that would date the movie. And yeah, that's fair. Yeah. It's, um, um, I, I wish that it hadn't. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so they show you the audience that stuff, but they also show you that that isn't stuff that Kevin is aware of. And so like from his perspective, they've just disappeared and it's his fault and like at first that makes him feel powerful and like he's got the house to himself but then it slowly really you know dawns on him over time that oh no that means that i have to do the laundry and the shopping and the defending of the house against burglars and everything and i have to face my fear of the boiler in the basement and he does all of this stuff admirably with a lot more competence than anyone in his family would have expected which is a little um, bit strange because like at the start he has a bit of a disconnect from the trip someone is like have you packed your bag he's like oh my god I've, I've got to pack a bag he hasn't thought this part through and then doesn't know how to pack a bag it doesn't surprise me though because it's set up pretty clearly by all the other interactions with his family that they don't think he can do anything and so they don't let him do anything and so he's never had a chance to know if he's competent at anything and this is the thing that happens with kids a lot when you don't want to risk them screwing up and so it makes sense to me that he he knows a lot more than he he thinks he knows he knows a lot more than his family thinks that he knows mm. and he does know how to do things like when i was eight i did laundry yeah I, you know i didn't go to the store by myself but if I had no known where cash was, I probably could have handled that as well, you know. But if you never get the chance, you don't necessarily know, you know, if everyone's always doing it for you. So that's kind of interesting. But yeah, so with it all happening from his perspective, it makes it kind of sad at the beginning, like where he, in certain parts too, where you realize like he's really scared during a lot of parts of this movie. And he's feeling very alone in a way that's kind of heartbreaking. And I don't think that I necessarily recognize that at the point in time I must have seen this as a kid. Like, I don't remember that being a thing in the movie, that it was kind of kind of sad. Yeah, there's so much of it that is, like, covered over with 
farce and silliness. Like the fact that his initial reaction to being alone is to go woohoo and to jump mm-hmm. on the bed and eat popcorn and eat a crazy Sunday and watch the movie he's not supposed to. His immediate reaction to them being gone is glad. Like he sits there and thinks back over those images of them saying really horrible things to him. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, that's great. Perfect. But you pointed out that uh, like there's the scene where the pizza delivery guy Mm-hmm. is dropping off the pizza and he's playing the movie to make it seem like there's something crazy going on inside mm-hmm. and to scare the guy away. And you're pointing out that like in that scene, both parties are terrified. Yeah. Kevin is terrified because he's home alone and he doesn't want anyone to think he's home alone because then he's vulnerable as a child alone. And again, in the period of stranger danger, we know he's been taught not to tell strangers where he lives and things because he says that at the checkout. And so... That's very clear that he's he is scared. And then the pizza delivery kid now thinks that there's someone in this house who's going to shoot him if he doesn't get out of there and also doesn't tip him appropriately and things, which I, you feel bad for both of them. You feel bad for Kevin being scared and home alone in the house. You feel bad for the pizza delivery guy who's getting stiffed on his tip because eight-year-olds don't really understand tipping and now has also been terrified by this movie, this uh, facade of Kevin's. It's just... It just sucks and you just, I want to give both of them a hug. <laughs> but I think that the fact that it is all from his perspective is carried out really well throughout. Like obviously except for the cutaways to what his mom is doing to try anything to get home even like the tiniest bit faster. Um, but any other part that any part that's from Kevin's perspective is from his perspective, including when they get home at the end and he's able to recognize that his family were worried about him and missed him and aren't just jerks who think he's incompetent and in their way. Yeah, I think it's, there's a lot of things that work together. One of them is so much of those early scenes and those ending scenes are shot from like a low angle. Mm -hmm. So you're looking up, even at Buzz Mm -hmm. is taller than kevin so you look up at him and it's this imposing figure Mm -hmm. and then when that's being done with kindness at the end it's a big departure from how unpleasant those first scenes are like i hadn't remembered those scenes and like i did find some of that hard to watch because everyone is just such a terrible person in those early scenes yeah but i think that's like looking back at it and with the way some of the other stuff is shot around Kevin that really does show you like it's from this eight-year-old perspective where the world is huge and scary like the boiler in particular is what highlights this for me is that there's this lens of his child perspective that's kind of putting a wash on everything including his interactions with his family and so everything has like this extra cruel valence and this extra dismissive quality that his cousins and his brother and his sister and his parents are all frustrated and angry and it feels very targeted to him and some of it is he's the safest target when people are grumpy and irritated because he's eight and what is he gonna do and that's not cool I'm not saying it is but it means that like if someone is like offhandedly irritated at him because he's little and is a safe target to do that like he's not necessarily seeing the bigger picture that the audience can see of this is a crazy situation everyone is stretched at their limit and anything that Kevin is doing is an interruption and is seen as like another thing that's added on top of an already overextended family. Yeah. And that keeps on going with some of the stuff of just how the conclusions that Kevin draws are shown. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because in some ways, I think some ways it rings true in some ways it's 
I'm a little incredulous of it. I think the scene where Buzz is telling them the story of uh, Marley like killing people and drying their bodies out in the salt and things. It is nicely done of Kevin just being like, wow, it's what the bigger kid is saying, so it must be true. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a bit of a logical leap for him working out that Harry and Marv are going to try and invade the house in some way. Yeah, that um, is a bit of a leap. That would be a bit of a leap in a film where it was a adult protagonist who understood everything. But I don't necessarily think it's clear that he thinks they're going to rob the house. He yeah. think We talked about this because we were. I was like, ah, that's a leap. But with the stranger danger thing and the fact that they follow him down the street in the van, as you pointed out, like, I think that he may not necessarily understand the full nuance of that they're trying to rob the whole street, but he knows that there are bad news. Yeah. But there's just some like really charming little bits of seeing how he views the world. The little connections that he puts together. And I think the one that really hammered it home for me was he gets to the point where he is sad that his family is not there. He's mm-hmm. scared because people are going to try and invade the house. And his reaction is, okay, I need to try and get them back. Well, I made a wish to get rid of them. How, how can I fix this? What high up power is there? Ah, oh, Santa. And he goes and talks to Santa. And then on the way home, he thinks the check-in at the church. Mm-hmm. Like his, his brain definitely goes, okay, who can fix things? First off, Santa. Second, I don't know, maybe God? it's worth a shot <laughs> it's like yeah he definitely uh exchange changes his wish list to just be his family for christmas and then decides maybe praying <laughs> will help i think one of the most adorable parts of that too is that he sleeps in his parents bed mm. um and that's a very like child comfort thing um, i mean that bed is also awesome so. yes but it is also like a, a thing of like you know it's a place that kids do go when they're scared and it makes them feel safe and it makes him feel closer to them because there's the family picture there that he also like holds and kisses and tries to talk to a few times in the movie, which is yeah. part of what makes it so sad. But it also in our, our uh, chat, Drew is saying, yes, it is. The, it is a place that kids go when they're upset. For I think he might have been saying it's an awesome bed. But... Oh, it is an awesome bed. I don't know which one he's talking about. Drew, which of us is right? both <laughs> oh okay well fair enough both um, um and it, and as as a parent he would know um <laughs> it is also where he like when he runs to hide mm-hmm. after when the police knock on the door mm-hmm. like he hides under the bed as well so it's like that added level of yeah um but those things like it it's very genuine to like a childish experience in a lot of ways at least yeah. from what i can see outside of it as an adult which is admittedly through my adultish lens but but yeah, I think that you're right. And that's like another one of the many things that are done to really emphasize that this is from his point of view and to really seat you very firmly in that eight-year-old perspective. Yeah. I think the other big thing that's like you can't really ignore for this is it is a story of a kid being scared mm-hmm. and in a scary situation. And you do get the reminder of that by his parents mm-hmm. and like, to less of a degree, maybe just because the police don't take it terribly seriously and like there's not much in the way of other avenues there. But she's like, I'm a terrible parent. Oh my God, my eight-year-old child is alone. It all works out very well at the end. But there is, for all of the Kevin stuff, so much slapstick and sort of cartoonish nature to it. Yeah, the, they're drawing very heavily on those cartoon tropes, which is a very serious influence. Like you can spot a mile away it's interesting because marley is presented as this terrifying figure and i remember as a child marley was scary Mm -hmm. when he has the moment in the church where he's nice that Mm -hmm. that was a big thing for me as a kid this is something i remember but 
the burglars are always shown as kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. Right up until the end, uh, the other part of this that I remember being like, ah, to me, was Joe Pesci's character like threatening to bite off his fingers. Ah. That was my reaction as a child. Maybe more so, I don't remember. But like that is one of the parts of the film that did stick in my mind. Also, the furnace was scary. But mostly, they're a threat, but they're not a real threat. He's going to one-up them. And it's never really doubted. He tricks them so much from the beginning. Mm-hmm. There's not necessarily a sense of real danger. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is helped from like Kevin's just bravado and like, are you going to come and get me? Sort of like taunting of them. Mm-hmm. But some of the ridiculousness of the scenes that do lead up to the end really do drive that home. One of the things that I think helps with that, like with your confidence as the viewer that Kevin's going to be fine and he has got this, is that the slapstick stuff with the burglars trying to get into the house happens after they've already established like he's gone shopping and stuff and like Mm. is so good at manipulating in that way and has been like taking care of himself in a lot of other ways that were unexpected before that point. Yeah. He has definitely shown a lot of competence. Yeah. He's also stolen. Yeah, but by accident and adorably feels terrible about it. (laughs) I don't know to what extent it's accidental. He's scared by that other kid. Like, he was trying to... He was scared by Marley. Like, he runs away from Marley. He is holding the toothbrush, and then he's being chased, so he keeps running. Like, it kind of is a cascade of things, much like most of the movie. (laughs) You didn't really... Like, at the time, I remember you being like, this seems like kind of a pointless scene. The part with the, the sh- him going to the store. Yeah, and it did seem pointless at the time, but I think that might be the function of it, is to show that he is more competent than you think he is, so that it's less of a surprise when he sets up all the traps later. I think that's also an important component of it as well, is that you see him set up all of those traps, which is a part that you really appreciated being in the movie. Yeah, it's the... You, you see that he has a plan mm-hmm. and then it shows you all those bits of setup so that you're going, okay, so how is this going to, like, what, why is there a fan with a load of feathers on it? And like, yeah. what's this about? And things. It simultaneously establishes that there is, as you say, a plan that's thought out and like that he knows what he's doing and also is foreshadowing of specific gags that are coming up. So then yeah. you can appreciate it and be like, oh, that's what that was for. Okay, one thing I will say about his plan, though, and like the way that it goes off like perfectly is that Joe Pesci's character just stands under the blowtorch while it is like lighting his hat and his head on fire for way too long. Like he's just standing there being burned and screaming for like far longer than makes any sort of sense. Uh, I mean, maybe it's shock. No, no. There's like, you know, autonomic like pull away from hot thing like response there are muscles in your body that react faster than your brain and that's like right on his brain like there's no way he's just standing getting his head literally blowtorched for like five solid seconds like count it like five like one two three four five like imagine just joe pesci screaming with his head on fire that entire time like motionless like it doesn't make any sense i mean that might actually be joe pesci's brand yeah. Or one of Joe Pesci's two brands. He's a very strange actor. Point being, that shook my suspension of disbelief. It was like, no. <laughs> There's definitely a point in there where they should stop. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I, yeah, that too. <laughs> I know that, like, particularly Joe Pesci's character is like, no, fuck this kid. We're gonna win. But 
I mean, if if you're Marv and you've gone through the basement and then you're like, okay, I'm going to go the other way. At that That's the point where it's like, no, you're already having to leave the building, go and get in the van, drive away, leave your friend to whatever it is he's doing. It's not in your best interest. Yeah, that also was uh, hard to believe a little bit that like they're going to keep going. It's just like, no, at this point, there are other houses on the street. Yeah, Joe Pesci's character is like, no, this is the best house. This is the house. That's the whole reason we're in this neighborhood. And it's like, no, not. It's too much. It's more trouble than it's worth. I just don't buy it. Still I mean, I guess that there's the aspect of then you have to be like, yeah, we, we did stop because of that eight year old. Yeah, uh, it's the pride, that, that masculine, toxic masculine pride. Yeah, it's very Looney Tunes. He's very Bugs Bunny. Kevin is Bugs Bunny, and and they are Elmer Fudd. Like that is what is happening in this, and Daffy Duck. Like that's what's going on in this movie. Yeah, and I think that it's sort of driven home with the fact that there's really like no negative consequences shown at any point for Kevin. Yeah, yeah. The only moment is when he gets caught in the other house, and then there's an adult there to save him. Yeah. Well, and then Buzz is mad that he wrecked his room at the very end of the movie and we don't actually get to see if there's anything that happens as a result of that i mean that's that's maybe a consequence but it's definitely a consequence that's played for laughs it is it is and i would bet that if he was mad at kevin about it his parents would probably be unwilling for there to be a thing about it because they just left him alone for three days (laughs) and feel guilty to be honest if the only thing this kid did that was bad the whole time was fuck up your room (laughs) yeah uh they don't establish whether or not the uh, tarantula gets found and put back in his terrarium, though. And, like, I think it probably does at some point. Like, it's yeah. definitely off in the house somewhere. I yeah. think it runs back into Buzz's room after yeah. getting dropped on Mars' face. I definitely worry about the tarantula while watching the movie. Yeah. yeah. Like, there was a point when we had to pause the movie so Charlene could ask me if anything bad happened to the tarantula. I was like, no, it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> they do set it up that something bad might happen, and I appreciate that they don't have it happen. Yeah. Oh, another thing that I wanted to point out as far as like influences and like things that are just paired really well for the tone of the movie is mm. the influence of how the Grinch stole Christmas in this film because they set it up where like the the robbers are standing like casing a house or whatever like while Kevin is watching how the Grinch stole Christmas. And then a lot of the time when the robbers are on screen, you hear music that I'm sure is very deliberately orchestrated to sound a lot like the soundtrack of the 1966 Grinch film. And I think that's very appropriate and has to be intentional, especially given that you have that early scene where they're both on screen at the same time. Also, the music is composed by John Williams, who I don't think does things by accident when it comes to this sort of thing. But Um, it's so appropriate because they are stealing everyone's stuff while they're on holiday for Christmas. They're basically being the Grinch. They're going to get home from their vacation and find that all of their stuff is gone. And they're also real assholes about the way that they're stealing, like in particular Marv. Joe Pesci seems to do less like wanton destruction of people's houses, but he does some. But Marv is just breaking shit for no reason and then like flooding everyone's house as like a calling card. And so he's just adding like a whole lot of property damage and just being an ass like in ways that don't actually materially benefit him or yeah. like yeah, it's really weird and kind of screwed up it's like stealing from people is not cool i can understand getting into a point where you're desperate enough to do that and like might be able to convince yourself like okay oh, these in a really wealthy neighborhood these people have insurance like they'll be fine again not that that's okay it's not 
but there's added like you don't have to flood their house and break all of their knickknacks yeah i mean Marv is doing like doing? sentimental damage as yeah well as exactly monetary stuff i think it's an interesting pairing for them where harry is more like vindictive on the personal level and more full of pride yeah. and about appearances whereas marv is like much more about the pleasure in just the act if that makes sense he reads as more angry at people for having more than him and just wanting to spit in their eye. Yeah. In a way that is shitty. You don't even know these people. <laughs> they haven't done anything to you. Yeah. Going back for a second of like how this is through his lens, through Kevin's lens for a lot of it. I also found it very endearing, like the way that you can kind of see what he has absorbed about what it means to be responsible in an adult. Because his family has disappeared, as far as he knows, and so he's decided, okay, well, logically, then that means I have to take care of myself, and I have to be the grown-up. So what does what does that look like? And he's like clearly mimicking his dad's like morning shaving routine, including like slapping aftershave on his face and like pretending that it hurts because you would have just shaved and your skin would be sensitive and it stings. But he hasn't shaved, so it it doesn't hurt. It's just cold, and there's no reason for him to be going like ah, you know. He's decided being an adult means scrubbing all of your crevices, including your belly button, which you never do or he never does. Those kinds of things. Buying laundry detergent. It's adorable because it's like the sort of hodgepodge of things that kids do kind of pick up on. And like it doesn't all make sense. And some of it is the sort of stuff you wouldn't even think that they would notice. Yeah. But he does. It's very cute. It's the uh, scene at the checkout as well, where he's Mm -hmm. having the conversation with the woman there and he's like yeah. reading the magazine and like being like oh i have a coupon for that and yeah <laughs> you know where, how are these microwave dinners are they any good it's a through line in the movie that you are seeing this like child perception of adult life in a very cute way yeah it's another thing that i hadn't really picked up on when i was watching it as a child was the permanence that he assumes it is yeah like he doesn't think his parents have disappeared and we'll be back next week he's like oh, I've wished them away. I have to be an adult now. And I don't have to be an adult today and tomorrow. Like, I've got to just be an adult now. Mm -hmm. Um, So I need to go and buy enough microwave dinners until I next go shopping. It's both kind of funny, but also very very sad. sad. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's like, well, what happens when you run out of the cash that you knew where to find in the house? Yeah. And you start running into some problems there. There are a few points which also... As somebody who used to work for Child Protective Services and, like, worked with kids and things, like, where there are adults who encounter Kevin and really should have called the police or called Child Protective Services or something, like the checkout person, although he does fool her into thinking his mom is in the car, but that's not cool. Like, you don't send your kid to the grocery store by themselves and sit in the car when they're eight. Um, It was 1990. It was different. I I don't even think that was cool in 1990. (laughs) Like, I don't. No, I don't think that that was appropriate at that point either. The neighbor, Marley, who sees him like a couple of times. Yeah, I mean, I he mean, does seem to be watching him after that. And, he like, he is clearly and, but... like, you seem to be out by yourself and I think something is wrong. I'm just going to keep an eye on you. And he's clearly watching to be like, hmm, that uh, kid just ran across the street and was pursued by two men. I'm going to go over there with my snow shovel. Yeah, like he does seem to be looking out for him, but he's looking out for him in this like, very quiet background way instead of like asking Kevin like hey where are your parents <laughs> we're yeah. calling any authority figure to like make sure he isn't alone yeah I know kind it's kind of a problem <laughs> it's interesting just for perspective of 
like the way the police and those services are presented as just being kind of useless. Yeah, it also bothered me that that police officer just ran out, like just left after Kevin didn't answer the door. You've been told this eight year old is home alone at the height of like stranger danger, like, and you expected him to answer the door. That's not how that works. Yeah. You should expect him to hide and maybe not answer the door. Yeah. The woman at the checkout does at least go through all the questions to be yeah. like, can I? And it's just like, no, he has an answer for everything. Yeah. Like he's clearly thought it through. The Santa and the elf like mm-hmm. should definitely do uh, something. Especially when Kevin is like, I want my family back. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's a tip off that they're gone. So this kid has been abandoned, maybe? Like yeah. there's are there are some follow up questions that need to be asked and maybe and then some authority figures that need to be roped in. I mean, they're definitely drawn as people who like have got other things they're worrying about. But no, they should they should really have uh, followed up on that a bit. Yeah. So I think that's the main things that we want to talk about. But I think the big question is fairly simple here, which is what is this movie about? I mean, certainly we. I mean, look at my child's brain of it as like it's not about a slapstick romp through a house that's that's part of it but what is the actual messaging and meaning of the movie i think it's centered on that you should appreciate your family even if you don't always get along i think that comes up in a lot of different places not just in kevin's family but also with marley's family and so that is what tells me that that's I think the main focus of it. Yeah, I think that closing on uh, Marley reuniting with his family and that sort of being the sort of central crux of the film with the meeting in the church mm-hmm. definitely means that that's a very large part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of Kevin like regretting the things that he said. And mm-hmm. there's not a lot of the mother like regretting the things that she said. Like, I feel there's room for a scene where she's like, oh my God, I've left my child alone. And the last thing I said to him was kind of shitty. Yeah. But maybe that's just sort of an unspoken thing. I don't, I don't think that in the 90s there was as much expectation for parents to have that kind of accountability to their kids. Interesting. I think there is this greater sense of like infallibility or authority of parents. Or maybe that's just my perspective from the way that I was raised. Well, I have no thoughts about parenting in 1990 because I wasn't alive. So Yeah. But yeah, I mean, that, that whole like, I didn't mean the things that I said. Mm-hmm. I've had the time away from all of my family and like e- even Buzz can come back. And if you've got time, then I guess Frank can come back too. I mean, he's mm-hmm. kind of an ass. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's also, um, I think, a parallel thing about facing your fears, which could be framed as like having to grow up and not be a child anymore. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that the message doesn't at any point seem to be that Kevin needs to grow the fuck up or something. Yeah. Like he is definitely a child all the way through. He faces his fears and like you get the spot in the basement where he like tells the furnace to shut up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the very adult conversation that he has with Marley in the church, mm-hmm. um, I think really signals that part as well. Yeah. And I think that's also part of confronting the things that are bothering you, including the stuff with your family. It kind of does integrate them a little bit because Marley is afraid of the rejection of trying to reach back out to his family. But as Kevin points out, like, you're just agonizing about it now. Like, at least you'll know if you do try and talk to him. And the thing that I kept wanting to be said in that scene is, well, he's not talking to you now. (laughs) So, like, nothing really changes. I mean, it does hurt. You know, it's the rejection. But you're not having that connection now and you never will unless you give it a chance. Another part of that 
like reunion with his, with his family at the end though is that at first he thinks his mom's the only one who's come back at first he's disappointed and he's upset not because he's not happy to see his mom but because he's concerned and concluded that she was the only one who was able to come back and he's never going to see the rest of his family again and then he kind of rallies and is happy to see her and so like the way it reads to me is that he is momentarily upset and then he I guess like decides to do like the adult thing and appreciate what he has which is his mom which is more than he had before his mom doesn't say anything that disabuses him of that conclusion because he asks where the others are and she says oh they couldn't make it they really wanted to but they couldn't come so she we know as the audience that she means they couldn't get the same flight she got to come back Mm. earlier but he doesn't know that he thinks she's talking about whatever magic plane that they were transported to with his wish and santa only had enough power to bring mom back and they all wanted to go but they decided that she should go or something you know and so you have that it's that same him deciding well i I have to be the grown-up or i have to like live with this i have to learn to move forward with what i have and that's at least better than nobody is mom yeah it was like the last really sad moment to me it was like he's just decided he just has to come to terms with never seeing his his dad or his siblings or his extended family ever again it is odd how bleak the movie can read if you're looking at it from a certain angle mm-hmm. like when i know i don't know to what extent other people have the like association of it just being like crazy slapstick but i think that when you see it portrayed in popular culture that's always the things that are remembered about it yeah it's definitely what's referenced it's what i think it is in the public consciousness and when you're actually watching it and like looking closely at what he must think is happening it's pretty heartbreaking yeah i definitely was hesitant when we said we'd watch this to do an episode on it because i was thinking like well there's not really much story there and mm-hmm. there is, it's just not on the surface as much. Yeah, it's very subtle and you will miss it if you're mostly watching for the slapstick and the silly physical comedy and stuff. If, in fact, you're an eight-year-old. <laughs> right, which I think a lot of kids do see that part. It, it's an interesting case of there being content that's more apparent to adults than, you know, that is going to be completely lost on most kids. Yeah. Did you have anything else you wanted to add on that? I don't think so. Well, did we answer your big question about like what is it about fear recognizing the importance of family yeah i think that sort of comes around to a solid answer it's sort of it's about the two things as one yeah but i think it's more about appreciating your family even if you don't like them and even if you don't get along all the time i think facing your fears is sort of the vehicle for the appreciating your family maybe i don't know i still kind of see them as somewhat separate threads in the movie it's interesting because he sort of comes to terms with a lot of the family stuff in that conversation with Marley. Yes. And he can't have that conversation with Marley until he can accept that Marley is just a man and it, say, yes, sure, you can sit with me. I mean, mm-hmm. he doesn't say that. He goes, he nods because he's scared. But mm-hmm. um, does that make sense? I suppose. And that is the scene where those two themes do kind of come together because Marley's conversation with him on his side also is about being scared because he rejected his family and is afraid to try and reconnect with them. Yeah, yeah. I guess part of Kevin's motivation that leads him to that scene is his fear at having lost his family. Mm -hmm. So that makes sense. Well, and he's also already determined he's going to face his fears. He has to be a grown-up and like a grown-up wouldn't 
not let his neighbors sit next to him at <laughs> church or whatever. Like, I think there's a part of him not running away from Marley in the church that is motivated by him deciding that he doesn't have the luxury of reacting childishly and fearfully in that way anymore. Yeah. So I think that's an answer to the big question. I think the bigger question is how great would it be able to hire the Kevin McAllister cleaning service? Oh, yeah. Like, that is very crazy. I know you pointed that out at the end of the movie that he makes the house spotless after the robbery shenanigans happen. And Except Buzz's room. Except Buzz's room, which which I understand. I mean, that was a like a very high set of shelves that he broke. Like I would struggle to believe that he could fix those and put everything back the way it was supposed to be. I mean, he does do a lot. It's also odd that the one thing that he misses is uh, Harry's tooth. Yeah, um, that is it, weird. I, I think that, that we'll let that slide on a storytelling thing. I do kind of wonder, like what the next week in this household looks like. Yeah. Because, like, Kevin has done a lot. Like, he has gone and got a Christmas tree. Mm -hmm. He's cut one down from the garden. Amazing. Impressive. Like, you come home and you didn't decorate for Christmas and your eight-year-old child has cut down a tree and decorated for Christmas. Amazing. A very small tree. A him-sized tree. Right. I mean, it looks good in the room. It's Mm -hmm. a good proportion. I mean, he's celebrating by himself. He's the only person in the family that still exists, so he doesn't need a big tree. But adorably (laughs) puts up all the stockings. He does put up all the stockings. It's just sad. It's so sad. But, like, there's this level of things that people are going to discover as time goes on. The tar on the basement stairs is and and nail that comes to mind. There's some stuff that I totally believe he cleaned up, like the toy cars. I'm sure he's had to clean up his toy cars lots of times. Well, it's one of the things is... um, at the start of the film, it's set up as a Chekhov's toy car with uh, mm-hmm. his dad being like, you know, you need to clean those toy cars up. Your aunt almost broke her neck on them. I forgot about that. Yeah. But yeah, so like, yeah, we know he can clean up his toy cars and like the ornaments he put on the floor or whatever. He can probably sweep up the glass, etc. But the tar and the nail on the stairs, the ice. When his mom comes home, like literally my first thought was better watch it on those stairs because that was the day before that he iced those down. There's no way that those aren't really slick still. Well, maybe Marley fixed that for him. Yeah. He's got the bucket of salt that he drags around. Yeah, maybe. But, you know, the, there's the basement stairs, there's the back stairs. Like, he iced all those stairs. You know, just there's just so much stuff that he can't just take it apart. The tar in particular. Yeah. I mean, at some point, like, the parents are going to be like, why are so many of our Christmas decorations broken? There's going to be some very strange conversations. Who tarred the basement steps? It's what adults do. Why did you tar a nail into it? Why is there <laughs> blood on it? Yeah. But otherwise, he does a great job. Yeah, he does a good job in like the public areas of the house. Yeah. The, the stuff that's going to be seen immediately and in the end scene. Do you have any fun facts? No, because again, I hadn't really seen this movie. Oh. I have a couple of silly ones. Okay. Macaulay Culkin obviously uh, took a roundabout place to where he is now. He seems to be doing entertainment work again. But he did a couple of years ago legally change his middle name to Macaulay Culkin. Interesting. So his legal name is Macaulay Macaulay Culkin Culkin. Fun. And we found that in, I think, 2018, they did a ad for Google Assistant. Yes, that's pretty great. <laughs> um, where grown-up Macaulay Culkin reprises his role as Kevin and reenacts several of the scenes, but with Google Assistant lines in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's pretty great. We'll it drop is. a link in the show notes. Don't yeah. buy Google Assistant. They're not a sponsor. But do go watch that ad because it's amazing. Yeah, it is worth watching. Sam is pointing out in the chat that Catherine O'Hara plays the mom, and uh, is in A Mighty Wind and lots of other things. 
Yes, Catherine O'Hara is an interesting actress just for me and Charlene for the last month and a half. Mm-hmm. Because she's in, I think, Adam's Family 2 in a fairly small role. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's that's that that actress. And Charlene didn't know who I was talking about. And now she just keeps cropping up in random places and things that we're watching. She was also in uh, Beetlejuice. Yes, I do remember her in Beetlejuice. Drew is also pointing out in the chat that one of the brothers in Home Alone is played by the same actor who plays one of the brothers in Pete and Pete, The Adventures of Pete and Pete, Mike Marana. I have no idea what any of that means. So um, The Adventures of Pete and Pete was a television show that ran on Nickelodeon when I was a teenager, child. I didn't really watch it. It was a little... It was marketed at an age range a little older than I was, so I didn't really watch it, but I remember seeing ads for it and knowing that it existed. And it was two brothers, I believe, who were both named Pete. And uh, Seems like poor planning on someone's part. Drew was saying it was one of Nickelodeon's best shows. Um, but yeah, one of the brothers in The Adventures of Pete and Pete was played by Mike Marana, who was also one of the brothers in Home Alone. One of the other ones that I looked up was apparently Joe Pesci like deliberately avoided talking to Macaulay Culkin on set. And like just sort of avoided him in general because he wanted him to think that he was mean. Oh, yeah. So he would be legitimately scared of him. Yep. That's not cool. (laughs) I much prefer the stories of like actors working with child actors who go out of their way to make the child actor comfortable. (laughs) And like be somewhat of a mentor figure to them. So Drew in the chat is saying that another of the brothers in Home Alone is played by Macaulay Culkin's actual brother, Kieran Culkin, who also played Wallace and Scott Pilgrim. That's interesting. I think, I'm, I think I know who you're talking about. I didn't know who Kieran Culkin was before this, but I think I, like calling to mind the kids from the movie, I think I can spot which one is Macaulay Culkin's actual sibling. Yeah, I knew Kieran Culkin was in uh, Scott Pilgrim because I remember watching that film and being like, that looks just like Macaulay Culkin. Drew was saying Kieran played Fuller, the one who wets the bed. Yeah, totally believe that. There's very much a strong family resemblance. Not that I believe Kieran Culkin wets the bed, that I believe that Kieran Culkin played Fuller. Okay, well, I'm going to stop looking up additional fun facts. I'm sure um, there are a million for this film. There are. Go and check out IMDb's trivia page. It's it's a whole treasure trove of things. But because you mentioned about adults working with kids in movies and like nice things, apparently uh, in t- 2014, Catherine O'Hara revealed that Macaulay Culkin still calls her mum. That's adorable and also a little weird. <laughs> there is obviously two sequels to this movie. I have seen the second one at some point. I'm aware that there is a trash cameo in there and that the plot for it is very strange. There is a third one which has an entirely different cast and involves four international spies trying to steal a kid's toy remote control car. I've not watched it. If you have watched it, tell me how bad it is. Yeah, that sounds like it wanted to be part of a totally different franchise, but was just banking on the Home Alone name. Yeah. I, I, actually, I suspect it's we want to make Home Alone again, but no one is interested. Yeah. And Drew is in the chat saying that Home Alone 3 is even worse than we think. So, uh, yeah, I believe that. That is... Um, that would be quite hard. There's a UK-only PS2 Home Alone game. I imagine that is terrible. Also, why was it on PS2 when the movie came out in 1990 and the PS2 came out in, like, 2001? That's notoriously bad. There we go. That is coming to us from the chat from Drew. Uh, that is a 
bonus fun fact that's hilarious. Okay, so we will leave it there for now. Uh, that is our full main episode. We did do a pre-ramble right before this that you can go and check out. We talk about Christmas movies that we liked as kids, or lack thereof what makes a Christmas movie or a holiday movie, and also, is the Santa Claus actually a horror film? Please check that out on our Patreon. Tell your friends about the show. Happy holidays. Thanks for listening to Ramblings. We hope that you'll join us next time. So I think that's a good question. I think that's a good question to the big answer. <laughs> But the bigger answer, no.